About 15 years ago, I applied for a grant, and the grant would allow me to travel, um, to learn some new things, to rest, um, and I was really excited about this grant possibility. So I spent days, weeks, filling out the application, writing a stellar proposal, getting my recommendations in, and sent it off to the Louisville Institute, awaiting their response. A couple months later, I got a letter back, held it in my hands, thought to myself, this is it. I think I got it. Yes, yes, yes. Opened up the letter. It's from Dr. Blah Blah from the Louisville Institute. And it started, as you probably realize, Mr. Woodley, we receive numerous excellent grant proposals such as yourself, blah, 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 yada, 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 wah, 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 for about three paragraphs. I got the drift in the first line. I didn't get the grant. And then the last line of the letter, after lots of blah, 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 was, do not allow our no to your grant to negate God's greater yes for your life. I memorized that line, seared it into my brain, in case I ever met Dr. Blah Blah, because I just didn't like that line very much. I've nursed a grudge against Dr. Blah Blah for 14 years, holding on to that resentment. You know, in the last year, I started to think about that line. I thought, that's a pretty good line, you know. I mean, for life, maybe not on a grant proposal when you get rejected, but for life, that's not a bad line. It's almost like biblical in nature. And hence, we transition into our scripture reading for this morning. Because that's really the point of what God says to David in this passage. David has a dream. He has a master plan. He has something that he really wants to do for God, and it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing that David wants to do, and God says, no, you're not the guy. You're not going to do this. I am going to revise your master plan. And yet, in the midst of this story that we read from 2 Samuel, God has a greater yes for David in the midst of the no. And it's a yes that applies to us today. If you'll look with me at 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, it's found on page 8 in your bulletin. This is a story of God's no to a very great king named David, and yet his greater yes in the midst of that. The story starts in verse 1. This is kind of in the middle of David's life, a midlife time. And David has really achieved a lot. He's come to a really good place in his life. So verse 1 says, now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Now that's a big deal for David, because he's been a lot of conflict, a lot of turmoil, and he's finally arrived at this place of peace, and this place of, uh, of goodness, and this place where he's, he's well-liked, and he's popular, and he's a good king, and his career is really clicking along, and the Lord has been very good to him. And so in verse 2, he goes to his spiritual advisor, a man named Nathan the prophet, and he says, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now the ark of God was basically a very special box. 
that symbolized to the people of Israel the very presence of God, where God showed up, where God's real presence, as we might say, showed up to his people. It had some religious objects in it, like the Ten Commandments, and so don't think along the lines of Harrison Ford and Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, think about the biblical concept that, that God shows up through the stuff of his creation. God does that for us today. We believe that as, as Christians, as Anglicans, that, that Jesus' real presence is here in the bread and in the wine as we celebrate the Eucharist together, that Christ is here and we can feed on him in our hearts. He's really present. So it's not that strange that he would be present in this, this ark. So David wants, he looks at his house, this palace that he's living in, looks at the little tiny ark of God and he says, I want to build a huge house. For the ark of God. That's his dream. That's his master plan. And, in verse, and then Nathan says in verse 3, he says, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, I love it when that happens. When verse 3 is the end of the story. We want to do something. We have a dream. We think it's of the Lord. It is of the Lord. And the, the Lord says, Go do it. I'm with you. Isn't that awesome? I love that kind of story. And sometimes that happens. I just want to say that sometimes God is a God of, of pro-planning. God is a God of, of dreams. God sometimes, His Spirit comes and, and dreams happen and amazing things happen. So God, sometimes that's the end of the story, verse 3. But actually, in this story, the plot takes a, has a twist. Verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord... Would you build me a house to dwell in? In other words, this is a rhetorical question. No, you won't. You're not the one to build the house. I know that's your master plan. I know that's your dream. I know that's what you really want to do. But you're not going to be the one to do it. No, is my answer. Now, I don't know about you. I don't like those kind of stories. I don't like those kind of stories in my own life. I don't like it when I have a dream and God doesn't seem to endorse it. Or God has some major revisions in my plan. Has ever happened to you? You know, there is kind of a master plan template in our culture. Go to college, go to a trade school, get a career, start ascending your career. You get married, you have a couple of healthy kids. When you're ready to have the healthy kids, you move to the suburbs, your career keeps going up, you stay healthy, kids stay healthy, they're on track, you retire, then the golden years start, you really enjoy your, and your retirement, you're healthy, and then eventually you're going to die, you know that, but you'll stay healthy till you die, and then you die peacefully in your sleep. Isn't that a perfect template? Isn't that kind of what our culture says you're going to have or you should have? If you don't have that, there's something wrong with you or something tragic about your life. What if you're, you know, you get married and marriage is hard? You're two sinners. And you didn't know that other person was such a sinner. And you find that out, and that's shocking. And then you find out, wow, I didn't know I was such a big sinner. And it's like, wow, now you got conflict. It's hard. Well, you thought by this point, you'd be married. And you're not. And you wonder, you know, will I be lonely the rest of my life? And you know you can probably take a shortcut. 
But you know what the church has taught and what Scripture taught, teaches about marriage, and it's like you, you don't want to take a shortcut, but it's, but it's hard. What do you do when God revises your master plan? Well, first of all, sometimes it just aches and it, and it hurts and, and you lament and you, and you weep and you gather friends together and you lament with them. That's the Bible. That's one way to respond and that's perfectly legitimate. But that's a different sermon and I'm not going to preach that sermon today. But that's part of it. I want to look at God's response to David in this passage. Because this passage is one of the, really, in a way, the key passages in the whole Old Testament. Especially understanding how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. It's like one of these hinges that you, kind of get, you can kind of go back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's really that important. And, and the most important word doesn't appear in this passage, but this is what this, this is, this passage is. And it's one of the most important words in the whole Bible. It's the word covenant. God makes a covenant with his people. A covenant is God's promise to be faithful, to be good to his people, to cause all things to work together for good, even in the midst of life in a tragic, sometimes tragic and difficult and fallen world that we live in. God makes a covenant and says, I will be with you. I will take care of you. I will see that this ends well for you. Even though it may be hard along the way and your life may not be easy, I'm not going to promise that, God says. But I promise that I will be with you and this will end well. Better than you could ever imagine or ever draw it up in your master plan. That's a covenant. Now the Bible is really, in a sense, it's a long story of God's covenant with his people and, in a sense, with all of creation and how people respond well or not well to God's covenant. That's one way to look at the Bible that's valid. So God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And now God makes a covenant with his people through David. So this is what people call the Davidic covenant. And really in this covenant, in this passage, there's three big yeses that God says to David and to all of his people and to you and me today. Men, women, children. These promises are for us today. Three big yeses. The first is, I promise to be with you. I promise you my presence. I will be with you. Notice verse 6. God says to Nathan, who's supposed to tell David, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Now, I just want to stop there. Because when I read this, this is like, what? This is really wild. Okay, God, the God that created everything, the God that created the galaxies, the God that created the universe, the God that created earth, the God that created women and men in his own image, the God that created trees, is willing to just like travel around with them, his presence, so to speak, in this ark it's like God says my people were refugees so I'm going to be refugees with them my people are suffering I'm going, to be su I'm going to suffer with them my people go through hard times I'm going to go through hard times with them because I want to be with them I have been with you God says and God says the same thing to David 
He says in verse 8, you know, you, you were just out in the pasture taking care of sheep. You, nobody knew who you were. You were just living out in the, the hicks, the sticks. And I called you to be the shepherd of my people. And then in verse 9, God says, I have been with you wherever you went. I have been with you. I promise you my presence. Now again, what kind of God is this that is just so intent on like, I want to be with my people, no matter what they go through? I said this was a hinge passage between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Where do we find that concept of God, I want to be with my people in the New Testament? The very first chapter of the New Testament. Jesus is going to be born, and he receives, receives a name. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, our brother is the one who is God with us. That is the first part of God's bigger, better yes in the midst of our what seems like a big no. I remember about seven years ago, one of the lowest points of my life when my master plan had unraveled. I remember hearing the Lord say to me very specific words. And, you know, aside from Scripture is our first revelation, but sometimes God in His Spirit, He will speak directly to our heart, a very powerful word, and I had a very powerful word. It was very simple. It was very clear. God told me, I will always surround you with beauty. And at the time, I really didn't think much of that. It's like, I will always surround you with beauty. Great. How does that help me right now, God? I'm not sure. But I'll tuck that away. Maybe draw on it when I figure out what you meant by that. But you know, I've, over the last seven years, as I've gotten to just kind of know more about how I connect with God, I connect with God's presence through beauty. I pray not just beautiful works of art, but beautiful film, beautiful music, beautiful stories, beautiful literature, even some beautiful athletic events, even uh, beautiful people, beautiful cultures, the beauty of food, the beauty of dance, the beauty of cities. I mean, I find that all really beautiful and fascinating. And I have experienced God's presence throughout the last seven years through beauty. So what God said was true. He was saying, I will be with you and I will show you my presence through beauty. God promises, I will be with you. Second thing he promises is not only his presence, but he promises his hope. I will make things well for you. It might not be easy, but your story, you trust me, your story is going to have a good ending. The story of the human race, the story of creation, it's going to have a good ending. Notice how God says that in verse 9, the, the, shift tent, the, the shift of what God is promising, the tense shifts. So in verse 9 he says, I have been with you. And, verse, and then the second part of verse 9 says, and I will make for you a great name. Now this is looking to the future. God is promising something to the future. And in verse 11 he says, you wanted to make me a house? I will make you a house. That's like, make your house look like a bunch of Lincoln Logs, okay? I'm going to make you a house, an amazing house. Not just for you, but 
for all nations of the earth. I will make a house. And then in verses 12 and 14 is really the heart of this passage and the heart of the covenant and the really heart of this hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So God's saying, somebody's coming after you, David, one of your descendants, and this descendant is going to be the forever king. Notice verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is going to be a king. This is going to be a ruler. This is going to be a leader who is going to get everything right. Who is going to rule with perfect justice and righteousness. Who is going to bring in perfect peace. What the Bible calls shalom. This forever king is going to bring this in. Throughout the Bible, we get scatterings of this, this promise that this forever king is going to come and he's going to reign and he's going to rule and he's going to bring in justice and he's going to bring in peace and he's going to bring in shalom. Who is this king? Verse 14 talks about David's direct descendant and it says this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. This is talking about King Solomon, who's the next king after David. Solomon was a great king, did amazing things, was an amazing leader, amazing man of wisdom, but he was also a flawed and sinful human being, just like the rest of us. He's sort of in this, the problem, just like us. We need a king who's not going to sin, not going to commit iniquity, not, doesn't need to be reined in. Who is this king? Well, flip over with me, if you've got your bulletin in front of you. Flip over to me to verse 13, or page 13. Page 13, because here's another of the Gospels, the first chapter of the Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, talking about the birth of Jesus. And the angel comes to Mary, and you probably remember this from Christmas and all this kind of stuff, the Christmas story, but it's, it's more than just a Christmas story here. The angel says, He will be great, talking about Jesus, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and as of his kingdom there will be no end. What's the angel talking about? He's quoting almost word for word from the Davidic covenant. Here's the one. This is the one you were waiting for. This is the one our hearts really long for. This is the one that's going to set things right in our hearts, going to give shalom to our hearts and give shalom to our world. This is the one we really long for. Now, let me tell you a little, give you a little example, okay? Because we live in a culture that tells you your needs need to be met a whole lot of other places. The deepest longings, the deepest needs of your heart are not going to be met by this forever king. They're going to be met by something else. Someone else. And you've got to meet your needs and get the deepest longings of your heart to that other person. Let me give you an example. Let me apply it to uh, an issue that people are talking about a lot in our culture is, is marriage. Okay? So, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but let me just give you an example of how this works. So Pixar had this great movie, Inside Out. And before the movie, there's this little short, little short film, five minutes and 40 seconds, called uh, Lava. Okay? 
Anybody see it? See the movie Lava? Okay, so Lava, what's it about? It's about a volcano, a male volcano, who is looking for someone to lava, okay? He's looking for someone to love, and so he sings a song, I have a dream I hope will come true, you're here with me and I'm here with you, and so universe or sky, send me someone to lava. And he's looking out at all this world and he's seeing the dolphins, there's, uh, you know, there's dolphins are paired up, birds are paired up, and he's all alone. He has nobody. He's kind of pathetic. Until this lady volcano comes along and comes up from the bottom of nowhere and now they're together and he has someone to lava. Okay? Really, that's the story. You want the message is to me? The message is, it is tragic to be single. It is tragic to be alone. It's tragic not to get your dreams fulfilled now. Maybe in a bigger way, it's tragic when your master plan or the master plan that we've sort of mapped out in our culture, you don't fit that and you don't get that and something goes wrong with the master plan. Well, here's the covenant making God saying, you, look, that's a beautiful thing. Of course marriage is a beautiful thing. Of course it is. It's not what I'm saying. But here's the message is that ultimately we all long for union with the one who is our covenant-making God. We long for this forever King who's going to come and bring His covenant into our life and bring His covenant love into our world and bring His covenant love through us into the world. That is the deepest aching, the deepest longing of our heart. That's the deepest longing and aching of anyone's heart. So how do you respond when... Your master plan gets revised. It just doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. The way you had it mapped out. The track that you thought you should be on. Maybe it's with your job, health, a relationship, finances. Maybe it's something with ministry. Maybe it's something concerning children. How do you respond? You know, basically... There's two ways to respond. If you can just make it really simple, and maybe this is too simplistic, but just let me, let me give you two ways that I think we usually respond. Number one, we can control. Number two, we can surrender. And I don't know about you, but most of my life following Jesus has been my biggest struggle has not been with other people, and it's not been with bad people out there, and it's not been with fallen sinful people, most of my struggle has been between controlling and surrendering. It's kind of the fundamental issue in my Christian life. So will we control? Will we try to hold tightly? Try to manage? Think of your fists like this. I'm going to control this. I'm going to manage this. I'm going to get this done. God's not going to tell me no. I'm going to get what I need, what I want. God's not going to say, over my dead body, God, I'm going to get it. I'm going to go for it. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the church has taught through the centuries. I'm going to go and I'm going to get it. 
Or maybe your master plan has already been revised and you're just like, you're more like, I'm going to hold on to the resentment. I'm going to hold on to the bitterness. I'm going to hold on to my unhappiness about this. And I'm going to let people know by the way I live my life that I'm not happy with the way God has managed my life. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold on. Or you can surrender. You open your hands to the God who's there the God who has promised to work all things together for good, for you, for us. He didn't say it would be easy. He didn't say it would be suffering-free or pain-free. He said, I will cause all things to work together for good. This is going to end better than you could ever imagine. The covenant-making God who says, I am with you, that I have a hope for you, that I have good plans for you. Let me ask you to do I'm going to ask you to do something. Um, and I noticed in the first service, some people didn't want to do it. That's fine. So just maybe you can just think it in your head, okay? So, but I want to ask you to try something with me. Take your hands, close them into fists, like this. Again, I'm not making you do anything. Preachers can't make you do anything. So um, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But, um, but think about those closed fists. What's underneath those fists? What are you holding on to? Maybe it's some resentment. Maybe it's some fears about the future. Some changes you just don't want to see happen. Maybe it's just some anxiety that you have. Some things you're trying to control. People you're trying to control. Maybe it's just your, your master plan has been revised or is being revised and, and it's just really hard right now. And you're trying to hold on and control it and manage it. Now... What is that for you? Now try this. Open your hands. Surrender. What would it look like to just let go? And to say, Lord, I don't want to control this anymore. I don't want to manage this. It's wearing me out. It's people around me, it's wearing them out. I want to surrender it to you. I want to give it to you. Friends, when we can get to that place, it is a place of utter and perfect freedom. You cannot lose when you live with open hands. And notice how we come to receive the bread when we have Eucharist. We come with an open hand. We come not just giving God, but we come to receive from God, a God who wants to give to us, a God who is willing to say, I will be with you. When you hurt, I will hurt. When you're suffering, I will suffer. When you have tears, I will shed tears. A God who says, I am your Emmanuel God, I'm with you. And a God who says, I am going to make all things work together for good. Receive my presence, Jesus says, my very real presence in the midst. I don't know about you. I spent a lot of time living like this. I pray that God would give me grace and mercy to live a whole lot more like this. Amen.